Well, let's just pray together this morning and ask the Lord to be with us before we, we study this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you today for waking us up and thank you for your grace that is all-sufficient, um, available, and that your justice points out our need and your mercy and your grace allow us to have confidence that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And we ask that you do that today and bless us as we think about some things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Now in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, and in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, there are some verses that are actually, um, what would you say, they are parallel verses. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, it said that Jesus went about teaching in their synagogues and preaching and healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. So actually it says he went throughout Judea in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23. And then in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, it says that he went everywhere. So it's the same verse, but in chapter 4 it says he went throughout Judea. So he went through this, this small area at first, and then ultimately went everywhere. So he went out to bring healing, and then they came in after they saw that he was healing. They brought people to Jesus to be healed. And of course, today, that would be a very comforting text, right? That Jesus would go out and heal, and then they would bring all manner of sickness and disease to him. All manner. <laughs> um, even the lepers which were quarantined in that day would cry out to him and he actually would touch them and heal them and he got in trouble because he was not following social distancing of that day um, but how many would like to have Jesus come today and bring that healing today and of course you can see here our chairs were attempting to uh, follow social distancing and, and the very few remnant that are here are spaced out quite distant from each other, except for those that are, of course, families. They sit next to each other all the time. Um, and uh, we don't have many of those here today either. But um, Jesus cut across these barriers not because he wanted to flout the policies and government regulations, uh, but because he was demonstrating his divinity as he lived in humanity. And so his healing miracles, he often would say, go, show yourself to the public health officials. Show yourself to the priests. And so once they would be healed of leprosy or something else, then they would go immediately to the public officials. They would look at them. They would see, wait a minute, they are leprosy test negative. And it was an amazing thing. Pretty soon, a great number of the priests even began to believe because they saw that this was a healer whose power far exceeded 
anything they could do. All they could do was diagnose and maybe come up with some small treatments, but they didn't seem to work very well. But here was a healer that could not only diagnose, but could treat the diseases. Now, it's interesting, those two texts, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and 9.35, they're kind of like a sandwich. They're kind of like bookends. And what is between Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and Matthew chapter 9, verse 35? What's between those two? Someone says four and a half chapters. But what are in those four and a half chapters is kind of what I'm getting at. The Sermon on the Mount. Now this is perhaps one of Jesus' most famous sermons ever. In fact, it probably is the best known sermon ever of anybody. So look what's happening here. You have healing ministry that then leads people to listen to the most famous sermon ever. And then after that famous sermon, you have another text that then applies to the church. He looked out and he saw that there were, the people were like sheep with no shepherd. And he wanted to send out other people to do the same thing he had done. And it says, so he went everywhere, healing and teaching and preaching. And then chapter 10 It shows how he equipped the disciples to do the same thing he had done. And they went out healing and preaching. How many can see that this is a very interesting paradigm? He heals the physically ill, the brokenhearted. He crosses lines because he is actually not spreading to the disease, but he's bringing an end to the disease. He then shows the priests what he's doing. (laughs) And they all get interested, and they come to the Sermon on the Mount. Why do they come to the Sermon on the Mountain? Well, it says in the book, Ministry of Healing, page 17, that there was no building large enough to hold the crowds that came to see Jesus. Anything that Herod had built, and he built some massive structures, Anything that the architects had designed could not hold the people. And so you see Jesus out in a boat, and then people come along the shore as an amphitheater. You see Jesus on a mountaintop with his disciples around him, and people coming up to listen. They could all see him, and there he is teaching them. In other words, his healing ministry, his divine manifestation of healing ministry led to an openness to the preaching of the gospel. I mean, think that should be the same case today. I mean, think God's people should be known as those who glorify God in whatever they eat and whatever they drink and whatever they do all to the glory of God And how many think those people should, in fact, as a result, not only be protected by his health laws, but also be able to reach out to others as a result? Now, do you know Jesus did seven Sabbath miracles? How many miracles did he do? 
seven Sabbath miracles. And those miracles often included healing. We don't find his disciples healing on the Sabbath because they can't really demonstrate their divinity like Christ did, right? Um, but we see Jesus doing that as a representation of his divinity. Okay, now, with that in mind, that's a little Bible study today. Um, let's now look at lessons from the past in Seventh-day Adventist history. Okay? Seventh-day Adventism is a religion that is a Christian religion. Seventh-day Adventists are Christians. And they follow Christ's example by going to church on the seventh day. That's why they're called Seventh-day Adventists. And Adventist just means that they believe that he's coming again. So they go to church on the seventh day, because he did, and by the way, he did all those miracles on the seventh day. They believe Christ was not just a man, he was God. And secondly, they believe he's coming again. So Seventh-day Adventists had something called sanitariums. Now I'm at a, what used to be called a sanatorium. Weimar Institute was a sanatorium. And it was for the treatment of tuberculosis, so-called consumption, because it would consume the lungs. It was a respiratory problem. And people were dying. The leading cause of death when this or these buildings on this campus were built in 1917 was, well, two things. Consumption, that is tuberculosis, and secondly, the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu. World War I was underway. This particular campus would end up serving 26 counties in the area. And people would bring their tuberculosis patients from 26 different counties. It used to be called a joint sanitarium. Joint which means it was a joint effort of all of those different areas, and they would bring their patients here. It was locked. You could not go in and out of the campus because people knew that tuberculosis was contagious and that it could be spread through sputum or coughing on someone else. And so they were very, very careful and there were some very uh, interesting people that lived here. One person that lived here was a man named Ben Nighthorse Cam Campbell, who ended up being, a, he's a Native American, who ended up being the governor of the state of Colorado. Another one was this famous movie star who did the Karate Kid. I don't know if you remember this, the old man in the movie of the Karate Kid. He grew up here on this campus. And I'm always interested to read the various stories of people who grew up here. We have a cemetery, several cemeteries that are adjacent to our campus of many of the patients who lived and died here. But how many think it's kind of interesting that there was a place called a sanatorium that was treating respiratory illnesses and also it was originating right at the time as the Spanish flu. 
Okay, so Seventh-day Adventists at this time, they didn't run this particular sanatorium. They had started what was called a sanitarium. Sanatorium was for the treatment of tuberculosis, but there was a early Adventist physician whose name was John Harvey Kellogg, and he started what was called a sanitarium. Sanatos, sanatate in Romanian. In other Romance languages, means health. Sanitarium, sanitary, clean, but actually health. And how many think that cleanliness is related to health? We're hearing a lot of this. Wash your hands, don't touch your face, disinfect surfaces because this virus that we're fighting against can live for many hours on a cold surface and for several hours on your clothes and for several hours on your hands. So wash your hands, be careful, right? Sanitos, sanitarium. And sometimes we have these novel um, diseases that develop or viruses. This is not the first time in history this has happened. As I will talk about in the second message today, there were 30 to 50 million people that were killed from the Black Death. Many times all Europe was decimated and millions of people were killed. This is not something new to be worried about in terms of something new, um, but it is a public health crisis. And you can notice here on this graph that the Spanish flu came now, why did they call it Spanish? Were they trying to be ethnically insensitive? Do they think that Spanish people get the flu? No, it's because that country of Spain was reporting it. That's why they call it the Spanish flu. And you see this huge spike in deaths. Can you see that huge spike in deaths in America and Europe? You can see on the graph at that time. So there was a huge spike in deaths. They think that somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died worldwide. It was spread from, they believe, Kansas, with the troops in Kansas that then were deployed to World War I. And then in the trenches, that was trench, socially close spaces. They all had trench warfare, and they got sick from that at that time. Now, something is interesting about this, which we're going to come to. But everybody was wearing a mask in the, you know, in the streets. The hospital beds were filled. The nurses and the doctors were getting sick and dying. And pretty soon there was nobody to take care of the sick. And you can see here in this picture that there's very few nurses and there's a bunch of patients. And they started running out of people to take care of the people who were sick. This is the fear in this nation, even at this time, that the hospital workers themselves will get sick, and then there'll be nobody to take care of people in the hospital, and also the other concern is the hospitals be overwhelmed, and there will not be the type of machines or respirate, uh, you know, ventilators um, that will be able to deliver air to people who have compromised lungs. And this is why they want people to stay inside and to stay away from each other because they know that eventually it will get to you probably 80%. Some people say 40 to 80% of people will actually uh, 
experience infection by the virus. Most people will not be um, uh, injured by it. It'll be a mild case, but in some cases, enough cases that they think would overwhelm the sense of, uh, system that they want to flatten the curve, as they say. You, you saw that graph. They want it to, to, to be developed slowly so they can keep up with it. Well, during that time, they didn't do that, of course, and that's why they had the systems overwhelmed. And a number of the sanitariums that were run by Seventh-day Adventists at that time had patients that came with the Spanish flu. And I don't remember exactly how many, but it was quite a number, and they had the patients that came with the Spanish flu, a, a similar um, influenza type virus that was killing, in that case, many times young people. Young people. Now, it's reported in this ancient, uh, not ancient, but this journal, Life and Health, published by the Seventh-day Adventist Review and Herald Publishing Association, May 19, volume 34, number 5, is recorded what happened. How did the sanitariums take care of these patients who came? What did they do? They had hydrotherapy treatments. They had a certain protocol. And I was fascinated this last week as I read through it, as I read through it, because who knows what will happen if hospitals get overwhelmed. Perhaps even our institute here will again need to serve as a sanitarium helping people. So I was reading up on it. And... Um, there were statistics, and, and there was a discussion of what was the infecting agent of influenza. They, don't know, they didn't know if it was a germ or a virus. It had not yet been identified at this time when they're, they're writing about it. And this Dr. W.A. Rubel was leading out in this um, effort, and afterwards he studied the sanitarium's the Seventh-day Adventist sanitariums that had treated the people that had this particular Spanish flu. During the Spanish flu, inpatients at Adventist sanitariums were being treated around the clock with natural remedies, and the mortality rate for these patients, according to Rubel, in his report at that time, was extremely low. One worker recalled that they were so successful in treating the Spanish flu that they knew if a patient was standing when they made it to the sanitarium, they would be able to save their life. So if they were standing, they had a standing chance. They, they were going to be saved, most likely. As a matter of fact, they had about 1,000 patients that came to 10 different sanitariums, and they gathered the data on this. 670 of them were treated as outpatients. In other words, they just came, they talked to them, they said, this is what you do when you go home. Here are some natural remedies, here are ways to do treatments at home. And 450 were actually admitted into the sanitarium as inpatients. They came on campus, and they, on the campus of the sanitarium, they were actually patients. So what did they, what happened? And by the way, they then, um, they then compared themselves with the U.S. Army sanitariums, the outpatients they treated, 
And then those who were in patience. Guess what they discovered? <laughs> Guess what they discovered? Looking at pneumonia and death, the U.S. Army um, sanitariums had a certain level of success, but the Adventist sanitariums had amazing success. During the Spanish flu pandemic, inpatients at Adventist sanitariums were being treated around the clock, and their mortality was extremely low. And um, how low was it? Well, here's some pictures of those early sanitariums. Um, Loma Linda, Glendale Sanitarium, Paradise Valley Sanitarium. There were a number of sanitariums. Battle Creek Sanitarium. And they got the data from all those. And look at this. This is the amazing thing. For those who were outpatients and self-treated, the mortality rate was 4%. You know, that's about the same statistic we're hearing might happen in this epidemic. Somewhere 0 to 5% of everybody gets a coronavirus, will not survive, is, is what they're saying. They don't know that for sure because they don't have all the numbers. There may be a lot of people infected that, you know, don't get anything. For the impatients, however, that is those that stayed in the Seventh-day Adventist sanitariums that were getting the hydrotherapy treatments, you know, they first of all start with hot and cold, but then when, it go, when, they, when the respiratory infection would get down into their lungs, they then would do hot and cold fomentations, which is just taking a, a, a pack and putting it on the back and trying to deliver the heat as deeply into the system as possible. Um, and very, if you read through this article, it actually shows you how to do it. Here is what you do, and here's how you do it. <laughs> and so it had less than 1% that died, that stayed in the sanitariums. How many think that's just amazing? No one thinks that's amazing? Because worldwide, those who had been infected were dying at a rate of 10% to 20%. So 10 to 20 out of every 100 versus less than 1 out of 100. This began to offer much hope. And people became very interested in what the Seventh-day Adventists were doing at these sanitariums. Remember how we talked about how Jesus went about healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people? <laughs> and then they became so interested that first of all he went to them, but then they came to him, and then he preached the Sermon of the Mount sermon to them when they came. And then he equipped his disciples to do the same. And this doctor, Dr. Rubel, he wrote a fascinating article about this time period, and he said this, he said, after this influenza plague is over, then what will we do? After influenza, then what? How many think that would be something to ponder? And here's his article. I just want to read it to you. Our country, this is written um, back in 1919, our country at this time is passing through one of the most widespread and devastating pandemics that it has ever experienced. We could probably say that today. It's almost up to date. It's, it's, it's one of the most extensive pandemics. 
Look at this picture of all the coffins on that, on that uh, truck. Coffins were being manufactured in mass. They didn't have enough cemetery workers to bury all the people, at, and the bodies were just lying all over the place. Gruesome accounts are given on every hand of cemeteries strewn with occupied coffins awaiting diggers to intern them, undertakers with dozens of bodies awaiting caskets, morgues taxed to their capacity, and additional buildings and even tents requisitioned for the overflow. Picture it in your mind, the scene. Corpses all over the place. Among the living, many are dying unattended by a physician or by a nurse. The scarcity of doctors and nurses occasioned by the war has made adequate help for the suffering impossible. Every practical nurse, every other person that could at all minister to the sick has been called into service, and still there's not enough help. No doctors or nurses because of the war effort, because of the Spanish flu itself. So he's asking the question, What are we going to do in the future? (laughs) Many cases of the disease, even among our own people, now speaking the Seventh-day Adventists, have been neglected because of lack of someone to minister to them. Our sanitariums are crowded with these cases, and many nurses and doctors and others have contracted the disease. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, we're in trouble. All the supposed supposed medical missionaries and all these people, they can't really help us because there's too few of them. We're overwhelmed. And he's basically now beginning to hint what? This should never happen again. We need to have a different strategy than just training doctors and nurses. I mean, our motto here is to heal a hurting world, and we're training pre-med students, pre-dent students, (laughs) pre-everything, right? And we're training actual nurses. We're actually in the nursing building. Haskell Hall is the nursing building. And there's a lab. And there's the classrooms right around here. By the way, did you know why the state of California allowed us to start our nursing program? They did because they said, you have something different than the other nursing schools. They said, you have alternative ways to prevent and treat disease. And there were a number of schools that were turned down in their applications. I can't remember. I think it was like 25 that same year. And we were allowed to start our school. Why? Because they had heard that that Adventists have a different approach to treating disease. And you know where that different approach came from? It came from a study of the scriptures and also to the early uh, pioneers of the Adventist church. They, the Adventist church, when, you, when it started, the average Adventist was dying at age 35 or 40, the average person in America. And so they said, we've got to look at something different. We've got to see how to, how to prevent, stop, reverse, better yet, prevent disease. What should all this mean? He then writes, 1919, but he could have been writing it in 2020, 100 years later. What should this mean? After influenza, after the Spanish flu, what should we do? What does he say? 
What shall Seventh Adventists do to be ready for such experiences? We have known from Bible teachings and the spirit of prophecy for many years that such things were coming. So what's he talking about here? We know what the Bible is, but what's the spirit of prophecy? Seventh-day Adventists make a claim, not unlike other churches have made, and they make a claim that they had a prophetic gift in their midst. Why do I say not unlike other churches? Well, Lutherans seem to think that Martin Luther has a lot to say, and they listen to him. Methodists seem to think that Charles Wesley and John Wesley had a lot to say, and they listen to them quite closely. Presbyterians seem to think that John Knox had something to say, and they listen to him. Catholics even today think that the Pope, when he speaks at cathedra, is actually prophetic, and he has something to say to them. Mormons think that the president of their church is a prophet, and they think he has something to say to them, and they listen to him. And Pentecostals think that everybody's a prophet, and you should listen to them. So it's not unusual for a church today, and by the way, people that don't even believe in God, they think they know more than God, and they're their own prophet. But Seventh-day Adventists have what's called the spirit of prophecy, and they believe it was demonstrated through the writings of a lady named Ellen White. And Ellen White studied the Bible along with her husband, James White, and began to write about health around, uh, somewhere right around the same time here. And she received four visions that actually lay the foundation for what we might say amplifying the principles of Scripture that then led to the development of sanitariums. And that's where all these treatments came that led those sanitariums to be able to minister to people at a rate that was actually less than 1% mortality. Now, I'll say one other thing. Ellen White had four children... And two of them got sick with a, 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 a um, epidemic that was called diphtheria. We now take vaccinations for that. At least some of us do. I would recommend vaccinations to avoid diphtheria. Anyway, so diphtheria afflicted all kinds of people. Started in New York, started to come across the country. And then it came to Ellen White's own family and her children. And she was like, at the same time that it happened, James White, who was the editor of one of the magazines, had seen this place there was a water treatment center. And he said, well, this looks like it might work because it's based on the principles of washing and water that are in the scriptures. And so they tried it. And guess what happened? Their children were saved. And they immediately went out. This is James and Ella White, early Adventist pioneers. They immediately went out and started to do treatments to other families whose children were afflicted. And they began saving the lives of these people. And that's what led to the, wait, maybe we should have a whole center that does this, a sanitarium. So what's he saying in this article? He says, look. We've known this for some time because of the Bible. We've known this because of what happened in Ellen White's experience and how it's saving all these lives. And we've known this. We've been told over and over again to prepare for these experiences by well-ordered lives and by securing such a preparation for service as would enable all our people to minister to the sick and distressed in such a time. Notice what it says. We knew about this. What we should be doing is... Leading well-ordered lives. That's a code word for healthy. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, 
Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A well-ordered life. And that's well-ordered physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. How many of you are following what I'm saying? And as a matter of fact, in the Bible, in Leviticus 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you have what a well-ordered life is. Eat clean foods, clean meats, if you're going to eat them at all. In other words, you would never eat a wild animal, which, by the way, has been the foundation of many epidemics, according to the CDC. Where did the HIV epidemic come from? The first case was the eating of, of green monkeys in Africa. That's what the CDC says. Where do you think the avian bird flu came from? Eating unclean, what the Bible calls unclean birds. Where do you think the COVID-19 virus and other SARS-type viruses, which are same family, where do you think it came from? An unclean meat market. So, unclean meats. And then it says, don't drink alcohol. Clean drinks. Don't have unclean homes. Don't have... And then it goes through laws of quarantine. If this happens in Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. Are you getting excited? I'm getting excited because I see that God understood all these things. He didn't say don't eat that for a reason. He said don't eat that because (laughs) it's going to cause problems. This is not catching God by surprise in the Bible principles. So then it goes to clean homes and don't eat blood and all these different kind of things. So what's, And then it says, after saying those things, it says, there's a day of atonement where you give glory to God. And then chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, it talks about sexually transmitted diseases. You're aware that COVID-19 can be transmitted also by sexual activity. And in the same book, it says, when you go to the bathroom, take it outside the camp and bury it with a shovel. And you're aware that this virus can also be, that we're currently dealing with, once it goes through the system, it comes out in the feces, and it can be transmitted by fecal-oral routes. All these things were taught in the Old Testament as a well-ordered life, and they were protective for those who followed them. How many think this is kind of fascinating? So how did Paul summarize it? Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, Leviticus 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, do all to the what? Glory of God, Leviticus 16. Look at this. We've known this. And then she said this thing that just really struck me. I couldn't believe it. Well-ordered lives and securing such a preparation for service as would enable how many people? All our people to minister to the sick and distressed at such a time. So the vision was this. Every person in the church should be a medical missionary worker. Not just the doctors. Not just the nurses. We're we're thankful for them. Not just the dentists. Thankful for them. But also... The carpenters, 
and the housewives and the landscapers or whoever it is. Ministers, call porters, teachers, and lay members have been urged to become medical missionaries. We are told that every Seventh-day Adventist home should be a small sanitarium. Now we're, we're, we have these stay-at-home orders. Stay in quarters. Stay with the people you normally live with. Stay there. In fact, some people are concerned that the schools have been shut down because all these people from these college campuses that could be easily infected and not really um, carriers of it, but not really succumb to it because they're younger, they're all sent home now to the old folks, and they, they're, they're concerned they're going to kill them all. But anyway, what are they going to do in their small home? Well, their small home is supposed to be a sanitarium, where you actually have these ideas about what to do to increase immunity. And that's why this last week, Dr. Nedley and myself and Dr. Ramirez and several others and other physicians were putting together a whole series of small tutorials to help people know what to do when they are sheltering at home alone. You actually can increase your immunity. You can lessen the likelihood that you'll get this virus. But every home is supposed to be like a small sanitarium. I mean, think this is just a wonderful vision. Every Seventh-day Adventist should be a medical evangelist. That the medical phase of our work would be one of the last to be closed. In other words, she pictures this time that at the very end of time, every Adventist home would be like a sanitarium. And every member would be like one of those workers in the sanitarium. And what did those workers in the sanitarium do? They had great success in saving people's lives. Less than 1% mortality. Now, i got to bring something sobering to your attention. All those people that were saved at that time are now dead. In other words, it doesn't matter how well you can do at even medical missionary work. We have a problem that's causing a disease that's worse than COVID-19. And that disease is sin. The wages of sin is death. So here's the thing. Jesus would save people. And by the way, all the people that Jesus saved, except for just a couple that are auditors in heaven right now, they're all dead too. (laughs) So here's the thing. When we take care of people as medical missionary works, we're not God, and we can't give everlasting life. But as we elongate life, as we help people have an extra chance, we hope they make a decision that leads them not just to life, but eternal life. Not just avoiding death, but the second death. And that's the whole purpose of being a medical missionary evangelist. And that's the last work that's going to close. I mean, what does that mean? That means at the end of time, other ways of doing things are not going to be open. Open to God's people. But when they talk about health and saving life, you may have heard Dr. Nedley's message last night where he was talking about this COVID-19 scare crisis has led people to really prioritize what's most important. And what do they think is most important? Is it sports? 
Is it going to the bar? Is it going out to eat? Is it going to the mall? Is it having nice clothes? Well, it's having the right kind of clothes. Yeah, it's, it's a totally different priority. Priority number one, toilet paper. Well, I don't know. <laughs> priority number one, health products. By the way, I don't think it's, it's uh, crazy to want to get toilet paper if this thing is spread fecal oral. I mean, you got to be careful. You're going to spread it if you don't have a proper way to take care of that. But the priority number one is health. And at the end of time, many other things are going to be shut down in terms of openness. And just like in Jesus' day, in the last days, people who like Jesus are going to be able to help people with their number one priority, which is elongating their life. And as they do that, they're going to have an opportunity, just like Jesus did. What was the Sermon on the Mount about? Change your attitude. <laughs> be a light. Be salt. How do you do that? Let me write my law in your heart. Because all the Ten Commandments are gone through. And then there's a summary at the end. And then it says, The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wa- What's the rock? It's God's law. His rock was in the ark. That ark was not only a stone tablet that represented his law, it also pointed to Christ the rock who perfectly kept it. And that's also a sanitarium. That sanctuary was a sanitarium. Those that were unclean were quarantined outside. Then there were clean meats. And then there were even fruits, nuts, and grains. And then there were fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables. And you're moving forward to more and more health and things that boost your immunity. How many think this is just fascinating? And that's what God's people are supposed to be talking about and actually be at the end of time. During this epidemic, this is 1919, it could be written today. <laughs> Seventh, who, who's writing this? Who's writing this again? Dr. Rubel. Who's Dr. Rubel? The guy who did the study on how less than 1% died from the Spanish influenza epidemic that killed 50 to a hundred million people. During this epidemic, every seventh of the has had ten times as many opportunities for service as he could fill if he had been ready for them. Ten times the opportunities. Why is it that our physicians, Dr. Nedley, he does a little video. Now it's, last time I looked at the site, 600,000 people on one site have watched it. Well over millions of people have watched that. Last night's Vespers, our guys on demographics, just because Dr. Nelly was speaking, 900 people watched it. How many times have we had 900 people here? Even though we had hardly anybody here, because we're trying to socially distance and do those things, more people are listening, even though we've had less contact. How many think that's just amazing? We now are doing all these videos and different things that are going to be released one day at a time. I just released the first one. It's on the Weimar website where I talked about quarantine in the Bible. It was released last night. I think now it's up to a thousand views. No one's listening normally to what I have to say about anything. You know? Doesn't seem like. But now they're not only listening to what is being said about the health things, 
all of the visits to our website for all the other messages are going up. In other words, when Jesus started healing, people wanted to listen to his message. And the same thing happens with us. When we start being able to help people in these simple but profound ways, Adventists have had, he said in 1919, ten times as many opportunities for service as he could fill if he had been ready for them. What a chance for missionary endeavor and for practicing that pure religion and undefiled which James speaks of. What is that? To visit widows and orphans in their affliction. To visit people in their affliction or their fear of affliction. I am so thankful to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I'm so thankful for that. Just think, if you didn't have an understanding of what we're just covering today in some way. Just think of the level of your anxiety. Just think about that. Some, however, this is very interesting, some, however, have been fearful of contracting the disease, so fearful of contracting the disease that they have refrained from offering assistance to the distressed until the disease actually invaded their own families. So one approach is to so socially isolate and hibernate that <laughs> did it help them at the end? No. Virus still came to their family. While others have exceeded their strength in ministry to the sick. So others can overdo it and throw caution to the wind. How many want to find the right balance? How many think this guy's article is just a fascinating? In such experiences as we are passing through, barriers, social, professional, are being broken down. Normally there's these barriers. The barriers are like, no, 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 we're the doctors and nurses, let us handle it. You, you don't know what you're talking about. There's still some of that going on, quite, quite a bit, and there's, there's wisdom in listening to people who have been professionally trained. But when you get sick and, and there's no treatment, no vaccination, no ability, let's say you get sick, you're going to listen to anybody that, that can help you. Isn't that right? I mean, sometimes it's kind of hokey, you know, spray this on yourself, do this. People are making a lot of money, but it just shows that people are desperately grasping for help. What a sick person or a family of a sick member wants is someone that can and will do something for them. How many want to know what to do to help people? It matters not whether the helper be white or black, Christian or heathen, rich or poor. <laughs> the doctor and the nurse no longer hold the preeminence that they have hither heretofore. The practical nurse or anyone can do things that can do things is in demand. I would dare say that every Seventh-day Adventist Christian that has studied anything about Scripture, the spirit of prophecy, and their own history has a lot of things they could do to help other people. 
After Influenza What was the title of the article. What should we be doing? How many think we should be thinking about this? This plague is not one of the seven last plagues. I'm going to talk about that at the worship service. It's not one of the seven last plagues, and I'll show you why. It's not that. But there are lessons we need to learn before the seven last plagues come. I'm going to show you that too. But right now, what's the lesson we should learn? We should train, every single member should train to be a medical missionary worker. You know what I'm excited about? One of the other things that happened is, we're here today just a sprinkling of us, because we've been given a mandate by the government that educational institutions and those providing online content, which is what I'm doing right now, can travel to their places. And by the way, the church is a part of our educational endeavor. We would not even have a school without the church. The church shut down, the school shut down. Adventists are the largest Protestant denominational, Protestant Christian denomination in terms of educational institutions around the world. And their churches are the reason for that. So you would never shut down the church in terms of online delivery of content because that would be the end of you, right? So that's why we're here today. This is every bit as important as every single class that's taught here. But the exciting thing to me is, in the last two months, there were all kinds of regulations about online education and stuff. No, you can't do that without this or that. You know what they said to us and every other school? You have to deliver online education. And now people, even our own professors here, I'll never do that. I can't do that. Guess what they're doing? They're all doing their classes online. (laughs) Can you say amen? Now here's the exciting thing. The strategic plan of this institution has always been over the last number of years to develop a fully online course for medical missionary work. Guess what? It's almost ready to go. We've been working on it for the last year. And now it's ready to go. So if you're interested in being trained as a medical missionary worker, you can come here. You can come here. You can start even in the confines of your own home. You can learn how to turn your home into a sanitarium. You can learn how to turn your, you can reach your neighbors and help your neighbors. Whoa! How many think this is actually a blessing? Let every Seventh-day Adventist, this is 1919, let every Seventh-day Adventist become a medical missionary. Let our sanitariums establish short, intensive courses. We already have that here. It's called the health program. It's four months. Let our colleges and schools install equipment and provide courses that every young man and woman shall learn nursing. We have a nursing school, but we also have equipment. We've had to buy more equipment because we may be overwhelmed. We may have more patients here that need help with this very thing we're going through now. Hydrotherapy is something we learn here that other places are not learning. How to have hot and cold treatments. How to do the very treatments that led to the less than 1% mortality. I don't know about you, but how many of you are just thanking the Lord for the insights, humbly, humbly. (laughs) There are stories in the Bible, when you get prideful, that's that's bad for your immunity. (laughs) Remember how Gehazi got prideful and said, look, I want this and that, and then the 
the actual disease of Naaman came upon him. <laughs> How many of you don't want that? We don't want to be pride. We want to be humbly saying, walk humbly with our God and say, look, just like that little maid in 2 Kings 5, you know, I know that my, there's a prophet and he can help with this. We say, look, I know that we had a prophet that talked about helping with this. They're simple things. <laughs> How many want to have that spirit? Let our schools of health and uh, let schools of health and first aid courses be given in every church. You know, one of our visions is, has been, and we've talked about it, is to, is to take what we have here and let it be in every church. We actually have this online health program that's ready to go. And we're hoping that people in churches sign up, maybe two, three people in the church, and they then train the rest of the church. How many think it would be great to turn every, not only a home, but every church into a sanitarium? In short, let us do what the Lord through his servant for 40 years has told us to do. Now it's 140 years, because this was written when? In 1919. Namely, become medical missionary evangelist indeed, and not in theory only. Do we stand at a time where we've been given another chance to do that very thing? Is the world today interested in less than 1% mortality? <laughs> Is the world today interested in what can be done? Now, I hope there's a vaccine. I hope there's medication that comes to help. Right? I hope. I mean, I'm not against, how many of you are not against that at all? But if it doesn't come, if this novel, which means there's no treatment for it, if this novel virus doesn't come, how many think that God has already outlined the principles of treatment? How many want to learn those principles? How many want to live those principles? Are we at that moment again? We are, but God has provided amazing grace, marvelous grace to his people and hopefully through his people as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've shown. Your people back in 1919 and what you want to show your people today May we be able, through your power, to help during this time of public health crisis. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.